0: Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I am your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 48 with my friend, Natalie. Uh, This is a wonderful episode that asks the question, who are you following? Uh, Natalie is someone I do not know, but I began following her on TikTok because I'm a tween and uh, was really intrigued by what she was doing. Um, She's a Juilliard graduate and she put together this thing called Literary Music Series where she combines things like Uh, poetry with classical music and she does like live classical piano shows and she talks about mental health openly and the struggles she's gone through with eating disorders and depression and suicide and a number of different things so this turned out to be a great interview and she's very open about everything she's doing and i hope you guys enjoy it and please stick around afterwards when we have jenny helms back to answer more listener questions Today, it is going to be dealing with nighttime anxiety. You find yourself laying in bed, can't fall asleep. Jenny's got some good remedies for you. Please rate and review the show if you're already an Apple Podcast listening to this. Just give me a little star rating. If you have a little extra time, just a little review would be super appreciated. I'm not going to hold you anymore, though. I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Natalie. <music> So I don't know. I don't know what you know. Maybe you know nothing, but that's fine. So I about this and the podcast and what I do. And I usually start with how I know people. So this, like I said, is, is a unique situation. I don't really know you, which is uh, right. makes this even more exciting. But it's very exciting. I reached out to you because uh, a few things that I'm interested in that you were doing on TikTok of all places I still feel like a tiny child when I say it
1: um I know same I feel so <laughs> like it's great but part of me like when I say it in real life I'm like ooh, like yeah. don't tell anyone
0: <laughs> yeah yeah I'll tell people to follow me on Instagram I have never told anyone to follow me on TikTok
1: literally um, when people find my TikTok in real life I'm like no you didn't <laughs> that's
0: really funny well you were so you were very open about uh and we can not talk about whatever you don't want but you were very open about some mental health issues and that obviously I kind of, I kind of,
1: we, we could talk about it. I want to, we should, uh,
0: you also are deeply involved with music as, as a career essentially, um, and school and Juilliard, which is amazing. Uh, so that immediately piqued my interest as well. Um, I don't spend nearly as much time as I probably should with classical music. But my father-in-law, when I started dating my now wife, um, he would take me to the DSO, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And nice. um, I got back into it again because I took a couple classes in college. And uh, yeah, it's, it, I, it's really beautiful. Um, and mm-hmm. when, the more you find out about it and the more you understand music, because I, like, I play guitar and sing and right. there, there's things about music I understand. But on the level that you guys perform it, I'm like, what, what's happening? What's, what's, how is that possible?
1: Um, I mean, it's a two-way street. I can't sing at all, so
0: haha, ha, I got you beat in one thing. Um.
1: Yes, I really, I cannot produce a sound with my vocal cords.
0: But um, before I circle back to all of that, um, let's kind of rewind, start at the beginning. Where are you originally from? Because you, you're from the Northeast, yes?
1: No, so oh. I was born. So excited yeah, so... to find out. <laughs> So I was born in Chicago in okay. Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the hospital of uh, everything.
1: The hospital, the uh, delivery person who is um, now my own doctor, which is kind of strange to think that she actually has known me since my first breath. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I was born in Chicago and I only moved out for college.
0: Okay. So you grew up in Chicago
1: yeah i grew uh, up in chicago Well, uh, suburbs
0: yeah oh how not dare chicago. you people are going to be so <laughs> angry with you
1: <laughs> i know i did not grow i disclaimer i grew up in wilmette which is 30 minutes outside of chicago so Fair but enough. when i'm abroad i just say i grew up in chicago because no one knows the difference
0: <laughs> when i started my job i i used to go to chicago every year just for vacation um, mm-hmm. and then when i started my job i go to chicago for work now twice a year but I go to O'Hare and Midway, so I don't really go to Chicago.
1: No, that's <laughs> but, not Chicago. Um,
0: yeah, no, I end up spending time at like dive pizza places down in like the South Side. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so <laughs> you grew up in Chicago. What's uh, I mean, what's that like? Grow- Do you have siblings? You have a brother, right?
1: So I have a little brother. Um, except he's nine years younger than me, so most of my childhood wow. he did not ex- he didn't exist what's
0: childhood like before your brother comes along
1: well I do have an older sister who's 10 years older than me um
0: same question
1: (laughs) so truly decade like you know every decade um well she's my half sister my dad was uh married beforehand and uh, my sister's real mom was like 18 when she had her so she Um, is still actually very much in my sister's life but could not raise her and my dad remarried and met my mom so my mom basically raised my sister since she she was two or three Um, but it was well it was I mean since we didn't live in downtown Chicago it was actually you know you think of Chicago as a very loud and rambunctious not as much as New York but you know uh, very kaleidoscopic exciting city but we grew up in the suburbs. So it was actually quite quiet. And, um, I mean, my family's pretty crazy and eccentric and <laughs> what do uh, your
0: mom and dad do when you're, when you're born, when you're growing up, like for work. So and...
1: my dad is an anesthesiologist, anesthesiologist. If you
0: can't say it, he's going to get fired.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> His job is gone as of now. Um, he is an anesthesiologist and my mother is a dentist implant surgeon but dentist and um they are incredibly hard-working people and uh you know we have a lot of we have like our family lexicon like we have very funny quirks that no one else would understand but that's kind of how all families are and um you know since it's a mix of half Russian, half Colombian, there's a lot of very strange family <laughs> traditions that we have. Um, <laughs> like really weird. Um, how many generations
0: yeah. have has each side of your family been in America?
1: Oh, my parents are both immigrants. Okay. Uh, so my mom was born in the Soviet union and my dad was born in, uh, Bogota, Colombia. Wow. Yeah. My mom, uh, Actually, an interesting story about my mom coming to uh, two semi-connected stories coming to United States. So when she was maybe 19, she applied to the best medical school in the Soviet Union. And uh, the policy there at the time, it's not like applying to college here where you have like a billion choices. Mm-hmm. She could only apply to one school. And if she didn't get in, she just had to like wait a year um and the soviet union at the time was very anti-semitic still kind of is honestly i mean it doesn't russia in general it kind of is um anti-religious in general but uh (laughs) maybe i shouldn't have said that
0: (laughs) they're listening
1: (laughs) but um she actually didn't know that she was jewish until she looked at her passport when she was applying to college and it said jew um and she cried. I wasn't
0: because, aware they put that on passports. <laughs> yeah,
1: at the time they did, and um, like she cried and cried because she thought she wouldn't get in as a Jew because again, they were very anti-Semitic at the time in the Soviet Union, but she did and then she immediately left the United States, so she didn't even get to take advantage of it, and in the airport, um, she was a refugee in Italy at the time. This was when all of the Jews were leaving the Soviet Union, like in 19, late 1980s, and um she was at the airport and there were three men at the airport holding up three different flags one for the united states one for israel and one for australia and you had to pick and so they picked the united states (laughs)
0: What kind of random (laughs) that's nuts
1: i know so My, my dad's story is not nearly as interesting
0: how long were your parents in the u.s before you were born
1: so my mom for 10 years, my dad, I actually don't know. Also, well, less, my dad for about eight years. Yeah. So did you,
0: they, I have yeah. so many questions about, about your childhood. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I mean, there's, there had to have been like a crazy clash of cultures in your house, right? Like two immigrant parents from two very different places.
1: There are very, very different places, like incredibly uh, different and both very multifaceted and, you know, uh, unique in their own way. But uh, you'd be surprised at the similarities. I mean, the, uh, well, first there's so many differences, but the similarities are actually, you know, a lot of the food it doesn't seem similar but it's similarly unhealthy (laughs) Um, and uh just like the dedication to family is very similar in both cultures although it's treated differently like uh you know the russian side of my family for example um my mom's side of the family like they're very affectionate, but in a different way. My dad's side of the family is much more like passionate and, um, fiery and, you know, uh,
0: the romantic side,
1: full and rich. And yeah, they romanticize life. Um, and the Soviet Russian side isn't very much, you know, hardworking and diligent and determined and gritty and strong. But the one way in which they meet is that, uh, there's this just fierce, uh, devotion to family.
0: Is there I mean, with your dad being an anesthesiologist and your mom being a dentist, like, is there, is it safe to say that you kind of grew up comfortably like financially? You guys had a,
1: yeah, we grew up very, we, I mean, we weren't like rich, rich, but we grew up like, you know, we lived in the North side of Chicago, which is like the, upper class side of yeah. chicago chicago is like a very segregated city yeah. just architecturally and in a sense of community and uh i actually felt it a lot um i mean like the south side of chicago and the north side of chicago are two completely different places i almost never went to the south side although there is a place in the south side called hyde park where Fl- frank Wood Wright. Built a lot of his houses, and uh, my dad used to take me there a lot. But I mean, it's that's obviously not. I don't know if it's for this conversation, but I mean, the redlining yeah. is just
0: disgusting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But yeah, we we grew up. I was financially comfortable and everything.
0: Um, what is it like in your household with your? I mean, I'm I'm assuming your first memory isn't till you're you know three, four, five years old. So having a teenage sister at that point. Was she around like all the time or was she partially with her mom?
1: <laughs> no, she was she was around all the time. Like okay. there was when I say half sister, there's I guess different distinctions when you think about what a half sister is. Like, you know, people have half sisters who they see, you know, maybe twice a year because they live with a different like she was my full like she was my sister. Like gotcha. she's just I mean she's my best friend. She lives in New York, like I see her all the time. Gotcha. Um Yeah, she was always there. Uh, we were very, very close growing up. Although now I am, the stories are leaking out about how much of an asshole I was as a child. I used to rat her out and like, like I used to like pick at her diaries and like pick the worst part and show my parents.
0: Yeah. My brother was only Um, three years older than me and I did the same
1: thing. (laughs) Yeah. And my brother currently does that to me. So it's, uh, I guess it's karma, but, um, no, we were very, very close growing up. The age difference didn't, I mean, she took care of me and everything, but we were just very close.
0: What else is going on in your childhood? Uh, I mean, you have like friends you hang out with You get along with your family. Well, like what's
1: honestly, I mean, I have memories from my childhood that are pretty sporadic. Like I have memories of new year's parties that my family threw which were always very wild filled with the weirdest traditions Mm -hmm. colombian and russian traditions like we would um i mean some of them are just just so i mean it's magical really like i don't know anyone else who does this well actually i do in their colombian (laughs) but um (laughs) like you run around the house with suitcases after midnight for good a good year of travel you uh keep you wear yellow underwear you eat 12 grapes when you count down um we had salsa dancing competitions doesn't
0: everybody Um, do that
1: (laughs) I, i know on new year's eve um we traveled a lot we my grandma lives in san diego we would go there um Starting, I, I mean, up until the age of maybe like 13 or 14, it was a very, very normal childhood. I did ballet, I did gymnastics, I did soccer, I did piano. Um, start And I we traveled, we traveled everywhere. Um, starting at the age of about 13 is when it stopped being a normal childhood in the sense that I quit everything else but piano. Um, and I started to do it competitively. Okay. And it started to become very intense like I um there were there were times how much of that
0: was your decision as a kid and how much was it like you're gonna take piano lessons and you're gonna do gymnastics and you're like how much of it were were you involved with as far as what you wanted to do
1: when when I actually piano was my choice I remember I was in ballet and I saw the lady playing waltas accompanying us and I would always be fascinated more by what she was doing than the actual dancing so I asked my mom if I could take piano lessons. I think the competitive aspect did not come from me. Both my mom and my teacher saw in me something I suppose that could be uh, that, that, that could go further than most children I suppose when yeah. it comes to music. And I was very much pushed to, you know, be in the top pre-college in Chicago, do the competitions, learn difficult repertoire. And looking back at the time, obviously it felt it, it felt like I was supposed to do that. I don't I wouldn't say I necessarily enjoyed it. I actually, I mean, it was a lot of pressure and I developed a lot of anxiety that I don't think ever went away. I was a very anxious child in general. My sister and I talked actually recently and I, you know, I opened up to her about my anxiety and my issues with it. And she said that, you know, I mean, you've been anxious since you were an infant. and Where do you think that I came think, from? I think... I mean when you grow up with extremely high expectations and like high achieving parents you know of course they love you and everything but they expect for you to be something special. Yeah. Like if you're ordinary you I mean this is this was my understanding that if I was ordinary um I wasn't anything. Like I had to, if I wanted to make it in life, I had to be special, whatever that means, whatever that word means. I mean, I guess in the context of my life, it meant being like the most successful classical musician, you know, and winning all of the competitions. And, you know, in high school, I even left high school because I didn't have time to practice 'cause it was too intense. I became homeschooled the last two years of high school so I could practice more and I remember wow. that was that was a difficult time. I was pretty depressed because I I felt like my life was being written for me. Um not that I mean, I love music. Yeah, I adore but you it. didn't you I felt like, like
0: you had a lack of control. I'm assuming. I like
1: live and I breathe it. Yeah. But you know, as you know, a teenager you're you know, instructed by your parents and you're pushed to do certain things and you know I wouldn't have been at Juilliard and I wouldn't have done what I did if I wasn't pushed but you know it like where is the line you know yes I was pushed and yes I am where I am today because I was pushed and like yes those rigorous hours of practice in high school that were honestly sometimes pretty traumatizing like they taught me how to practice on my own which I do now in a less traumatizing way (laughs) but um like like you know where's the line you know sometimes i i was talking to my friend who you know deals with similar things he also dealt with depression he dealt with anxiety and he's i mean he's incredibly successful like he's at stanford he's amazing and i remember we were talking and he said you know i wish that we grew up stupid (laughs) with no potential and no talent because then we wouldn't know we, then we wouldn't feel the pressure of, Oh my God, I'm not living up to what I'm supposed to be, which who knows what that is. Like, I remember I started Juilliard and to be honest, when I got into Juilliard, I actually didn't want to go. I was amazed that I got in. And it was an amazing achievement and everything. But if I'm being completely honest, I didn't want to go. Um,
0: Why do you think that was?
1: Because I knew that if I went to Juilliard, that would set my life on, in, at the time, what I thought was an irreversible course. Yeah. And being, nine, I was 19, I took a gap year. Being 19 and set, I mean, I'm sure most seniors in high school feel this way. But for me, it was a little bit more intense because, you know, you go to, you know, you know you go to a regular, you know, liberal arts or like Big Ten school or even, even Ivy League, like you go to a regular school and you can be an undeclared major. There's a billion things you can do. I mean, Juilliard is essentially a trade school. You yeah. know, you go to Juilliard for three things, dance, acting, or music. Like you can't go to Juilliard and decide... Like my sister did. She went to Indiana University and she started pre-med and then she changed her mind and now she's a writer. Um, and like you, you can't do that at a school like Juilliard. So, you know, when you decide to go to a school like Juilliard, you decide to put your life on a certain path. And unless you transfer or quit, there's no turning back. Um, so at 19, I, I personally, I know this now. At the time, I was too scared to say anything, but I wasn't ready to do that. Yeah. I wasn't ready to like give up cuz I also applied to Ivy Leagues, like I applied to liberal arts schools, I got into some of them. I wasn't ready to give that up. But being 19, still living at home, still very much under the thumb of my parents who like were influencing me and telling me like what's best for me, I went to Juilliard. And it was a wonderful experience. I mean, there were things about it that were kind of toxic. <laughs> as is expected of a highly competitive school. But I now realize that there is no such thing as an irreversible course. Like you can do whatever you want, no matter where you went to school. Yeah. Um, And free will, man. Yeah. (laughs) Free will. Like I started Juilliard thinking I wanted to be a concert pianist and I'm leaving Juilliard being like, nope, I want to be a teacher. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah you can so. i i i can assure you as i like go down the path of getting my master's in counseling after like i mean i'll tell you whatever stories you want about my 20s but they were let's just say they're unproductive <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah you, i mean you you can always change what you're doing and age is a exactly number. um yeah i want to shift gears a little Just because my Mm -hmm. my mind is tying some things together, and I'm curious if I'm right or not. Yes, you probably are. And and I only bring this up because you're very vocal about it. Um,
1: Yeah, sure.
0: You mentioned suffering from an eating disorder. Yes. When did that start?
1: So I've actually been thinking about this. I'm I'm pretty sure it started... And lasted very much on and off. And there were long periods when it was off. But it started when I was like 12. Um, I remember I started to become very aware of the fact that I was kind of chubby. Or what I thought was chubby. You know? Like, I think all parents have growth to do and have learning to do. No matter how loving. And when they're incredibly loving people. Um... But a lot of emphasis was placed on my appearance because, you know, I remember them saying, like, you're such a beautiful girl, you know, it's going to get you far in life. And that kind of lodged inside of me. And I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, I can't be chubby. I remember my like even my grandparents would make like small comments like, oh, more bread, you know, like you look a little you're looking a little chubby and i remember those lodged in me and i didn't really think anything of them i thought they were very normal and i thought that they were very you know like they're just trying to help and so i remember looking back like when i was 13 or 14 like seventh eighth grade i got very skinny and it like i wasn't doing anything harmful at the time but that was my first instance where i was like i want to stop eating as much And at that point, it was very casual. And then somehow, I don't know how, but I got out of it. And for most of high school, I was actually pretty normal. Me, you know, I had the occasional, you know, I'm, oh, like I could lose some weight—typical normal thought. But then I started Juilliard, and I was all on my own. And I think, looking back now that I'm in recovery, looking back. It started around the middle of my sophomore year. And I remember it started kind of stupidly. So I was on birth control and I switched doses, which made me immediately lose like five pounds. I remember looking at that and thinking, now I know what I was doing. What I was doing was realizing that i felt like i was losing control over other things in my life and the one thing that i could control was my body
0: that's what i was gonna kind of tie together as far as when you were younger because you mentioned how you felt like you weren't really in control of your life especially when you were exactly from school and pushed into all these things and i imagine that's the thing that you took control of
1: (laughs) yes and i remember i also like i've always dealt with like self-esteem issues i mean I won't get into specifics, but like, I've been told, like, I've been given like the hot and cold treatment, like, oh, like, you're the most special, wonderful, beautiful person in the world. And then the next minute, like, you suck, like, you're horrible. Like, and I remember it just made me very confused. And I've always dealt with, like, self-esteem and confidence issues. But I remember when I lost those five pounds, I thought to myself, oh, I'm starting to look pretty good. And then I just decided to stop eating. And I thought it was so normal. um, Because my brain was so skewed into thinking that I am, I, I feel bad about myself. And to make myself feel good, I'm just going to tell myself that I can just lose weight. And that's, that's what I did. And I certainly did. And the, to- the One of the most toxic things about it is I lost maybe 40 pounds wow. in six months, and everyone was telling me how incredible I looked because that's the stigma about eating disorders. I wasn't skinny enough to the bone to look like I actually had an eating disorder. I just looked like a thin girl, but that's not my body type. My body type is not naturally thin. I mean, it's like fine and I mean who cares like labels or anything, but like I got thin so to the point that I was unhealthy, but not to the point where I looked too unhealthy. I just looked very skinny. I mean looking back, looking at myself now and looking pictures of them like I was, I did look pretty unhealthy, but to everyone else it was like, Oh, like, wow, you look great, you lost a lot of weight. And actually, Interestingly enough, the only person, I mean, eventually my parents started to notice, but they didn't notice because of my appearance. They noticed notice because of my habits when I came home over the summer. I was like not eating and I was like running to the bathroom after I ate to like purge or whatever. And they started noticing and, you know, they got really worried. But before that, the only person to be honest with me and to notice was actually the head of the piano department at Juilliard. I had a lesson with her. And like I would have frequent lessons with her. She wasn't my main teacher, but you know, you know, we like each other. She's very kind. And after a lesson, she goes, Oh, like, you're really skinny and I was like, Oh yeah, I felt like such stupid, like, Oh yeah, like I'm doing yoga, whatever. I don't know what the fuck <laughs> I said. And she's like, Natalie, you're thin. Like, are you okay? Like you you need to like you need to check yourself out like i'm worried about you i remember because it wasn't like my mom saying that wasn't like my boyfriend saying that it was it was like that that teacher and i was like shit wow and even then it was only it took another about two years for me to actually start recovering and recovering is a very winding road i tried um multiple times and I, I can safely say that this is the first time that it's actually going in one straight direction because before that i've tried and it didn't really work again because eating disorders are very intimately intertwined with you know other mental illnesses like depression where like when you have depression like low self-esteem eating disorders Feed off of that because you know you feel like this is the one like I said like this is the one thing that you can control and I felt like that was the one thing I could control and yeah you know I'm not gonna lie and say I'm completely recovered like yes I still have moments where I like like I feel myself gaining weight healthfully like I'm I needed to gain this weight back and I still think to myself sometimes like oh shit I'm gaining weight but it's different now because something i don't know how or what well actually i do know how something scared me into recovering and it was i don't i don't remember if someone told me or if i read it somewhere but like that you know i mean dying didn't scare me i didn't care <laughs> but the fact that i could be infertile was what scared me yeah and that's very true like you could lose your ability to have children that oh, yeah. kind of snapped me out of it and it's funny that it wasn't like like everyone tell it like i remember when it was really bad and my mom was telling me like you could die from this and i was like okay um but like whatever um but
0: whatever mom
1: <laughs> cool like please <laughs> i want to <laughs> um but it was the fact that because you know eventually i really want to have children it was the fact that i perhaps wouldn't be able to have children that just stopped me out of it and ever since then i like haven't done anything remotely I mean I've had thoughts but I haven't actually taken action on them in like seven months so
0: congratulations yeah
1: yeah no it's been and I feel like right now I'm thinking to myself like you know why am I talking about this but I think it's important to talk about it because you know like people talk I'm not equating them one is obviously much more serious than the other but you know if you have cancer or if you broke your leg or if you you know have some sort of chronic illness like it's for some reason that's okay to talk about it But if you have an eating disorder it's supposed to be hidden like that's it's a disease and it's a deadly one
0: yeah and I'm I'm an advocate obviously for talking about getting and shining a light on any sort of uh, mental illness, or uh, as it manifests as an eating disorder. Like, I, I've interviewed, I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> the reality I've interviewed a number of people that have um, recovered from eating disorders or haven't recovered yet from eating disorders. But yeah, it's so I, I mean, talking about it and bringing some level of normalcy to it, which is funny. I'm not a huge fan of that word in most cases. Uh, and I almost was like, "Hey, you keep saying normal and ordinary. Let's talk about that." <laughs> but, um, yeah,
1: because that's, that's a, true.
0: It's a funny thing. Everybody always says, "If you were to just ask anybody," in my experience, like, "Tell me about your childhood." Oh, I had a normal childhood, and
1: as opposed to what? Yeah,
0: like normal for everybody is so ridiculously different that it's it's always funny to hear that and. That's why I always press and like tell me what tell me more about this normal childhood um
1: right yeah I, I mean I, when you say it that way I guess my childhood was not normal at all um but then again no one's childhood is normal like it's all contextual yeah and um, it's I
0: mean it's based it's, on your environment and you know what you're who you're who you're kind of comparing normal to like when you say yeah. oh, as in you know normal gymnastics ballet piano and it's like is that normal I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: I mean, maybe not.
0: I think I, I think most girls I know did dance to some degree when they were. Again. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere I will find a VHS tape of my wife, I promise. It's <laughs> embarrassed the hell out of her. Um, Definitely. But yeah, I, I just, and as far as talking about it, I think that's probably the best thing you can do. Not only just to let people know, but I mean, talking about anything, that is affecting you directly is going to help you, you know, like, yeah, that's why I asked yeah. you about the, the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. Cause summarize, summary wise, summarize, I can't talk, but it's a, it was a study done by the CDC and Kaiser back in the nineties. And they were able to tie in uh, childhood traumas to uh, physical and mental health later on. So, so that's like I—I'll talk about it forever because I—it's so fascinating and the studies that they've done and the the work they're doing right now around it because it's still new, um, you know, right. as far as the last twenty years or so. And so addressing some of that stuff and reframing it. The reason I brought it up is because I six years ago I would have said my A score was four, and now I say it's six mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I've kind of uncovered some things in my childhood and I was like, oh, that's that <laughs> like,
1: that's, yeah i've actually that's had similar is. experiences and now that like now that i think about it i um i mean i've known this but you know like you said your child brain interprets things differently than yeah. your adult brain and
0: it's the only way to keep if, you, you know, safe No, as a
1: child as a child and i uncovered this in therapy a lot of the things that i was told i perceived as very normal again normal yeah. in context it's something very natural something that was supposed to happen and now I look back and it's like the way that I was spoken to that's not right even if it's mild even if it's just you know it shaped me it's the reason why I you know have low self-esteem and where I struggle with confidence and I'm still like anxiety is such a huge part of my life. And I, you know, as a performing artist, it's, you know, it's difficult to deal with because, you know, even in the smallest performance settings I have, and everyone gets nervous, but like I have like debilitating nerves to the point where I have to take like beta blockers and I I just can't function without them. Yeah and um and it, it everything comes from what you experienced as a child it just molds you and you know i've i mean it's you know it's it's not black and white there's so many there's so much gray area and like there's so much there's there are so many positives that happen too and like you know i've done a lot i'm i can say now and i wasn't able to say this before because i thought that because of imposter syndrome and i still have it but i can say i'm uh, yeah <laughs>
0: i'm very familiar with imposter syndrome <laughs> uh,
1: i can say now that like you i can't even say it now never mind i'll say it anyways <laughs> that i'm like proud of things that i've done like i've like just Even externally, like internally, you know, I'm very proud that I was able to dig myself out of an eating disorder and obviously with the help of like a nutritionist at Juilliard and, you know, a therapist. But like externally, like, you know, I've done pretty cool things that I can look back on one day and say, wow, that was cool that I did that. And, you know it's imposter syndrome is difficult because you can't let yourself have your brain doesn't let yourself have those wins because not like from childhood i feel like you know nothing is ever good enough like even if i do the most amazing thing win a major competition like it still won't be good enough and it reminds me of in some ways you know have you read great gatsby
0: yeah well i haven't no well, i don't know why i said have you yeah. seen the movie <laughs> uh i've cliff's note noted cliff's noted how do you say that but yes short answer i know i know the gist (laughs) you
1: know were you
0: about to say something very specific from it because i would not know that
1: well i was gonna say you know jay gatsby he in the book he um he's in love with daisy and he looks he he looks at the green light across the I don't know if it's the Hudson. I don't know which river it is. It's some body of water. And the green light symbolizes Daisy and what he always dreams of and what he always wants. And the minute he actually gets that, he's not satisfied because he'll never be satisfied. He always needs more and wants more and nothing is ever good enough. And, of course, it's a little bit different, but in some ways it's the same. Like, But in a in a different shade, It's it's just, you know... I often feel like, you know, no matter how much I actually accomplish on paper, like nothing is ever good enough. And, but I also know that that's not entirely true because the biggest accomplishment is just to be happy with yourself. Yeah. The biggest accomplishment, no matter what you do in life is just to be happy. And for me, that doesn't mean that you're overjoyed every single day of your life. And every single day you laugh and it, you know, sunshine surrounds you and it, it doesn't mean that I mean we all have bad days but it does mean that you're at peace like you are sustaining some sort of sensation of serenity in your life because you're in a place where of course things can change but you feel comfortable and you feel like you can take a breath that for me is like probably the greatest achievement and I'm not there, (laughs) but I think, but I think if I am just generally people strive less towards, you know, achieving a dream job or winning a major competition or getting into your dream college. Of course these are milestones and they're great things, but, they're only a means to an end. They're not the end. They're just part they're just like pawns on like
0: well pawns. yeah, that's no, a lot of people princess. say something along the lines of of you know if I have this, then I'll be happy. If I get if I make a million dollars, I'll be happy. If I get that record contract, yeah. I'll be happy. you know if I in that movie I'll be happy and then they get there and they're like, hey, I feel the same way. I have this awesome thing now. But I still feel the same way, and that's because like that's not where that true happiness lies. Like that comes from personal growth. Like if if you think you're right. gonna achieve these things from external features, like you need to look inside and and find what it is that's stopping you from achieving that mental state without those things. If you wanna, Yay. yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's there's a number of shows I listen to. Uh, which are like all celebrity hosted that are all there that's they, that's brought up a number of times because people are always think they're when they get the you know when they're millionaires and they have the house and the wife and the family and the dog and mm-hmm. all the cars like but it's it's not that's not what it is <laughs> there's there's some work you got to do on the inside if you want to get to that place if you're not there i'm not saying that everybody is a sad until they figure it out but You know, for people like me, (laughs) you got to you got to do the work. Um,
1: Exactly. And also, like, it, it doesn't matter how much money you have or, you know, the amount of accolades you carry on your back. It's if you're at peace and I can theoretically be at peace right now. I'm in the middle of my master's degree. My life is in no way set Like I have so much more to do and so much more to grow. I don't have no idea what my life will look like in the next 10 years. I have a dream, but I don't know if it's going to happen. But the point is that, you know, first of all, I and everyone should, again, achieve a sense of peace if they want to be happy no matter how much money they have or where they are in life even if they're still figuring it out but also I think to achieve a sense of peace and I struggle with this so much is to be the own your be your own like author of your own story like you can't have contributors you can't have people telling you what to do and you can ask for opinions if you want them but they're just opinions like there's no there's no rule book and if you listen to other people and I'm so bad at that I I have I listen to other people way too much and care about what they think it's such a growth halt like I've I still do that you know because and I and I think that comes from not uh not being taught as a child that you have autonomy over yourself and I think when I'm a mom, of course, I'm going to tell my child, like, what to do. Because I'm not going to, like, be like, hey, go run along and do some drugs. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> obviously, I'm going to, you know. Impart values them and way. help they
0: make good decisions.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm not going to, like, if they if they want to, you know never touch an instrument and be a professional magician. I'll be like, okay, cool. Just don't kill anyone. Like don't saw the wrong
0: person in half. I told you, you have to practice that
1: trick. Like if you want to be a professional, I don't know anything, you know, it's, it's, I won't, it's bad to direct other people's life.
0: Yeah. I agree. Um, So changing subjects slightly. Yes. Uh, you go to Juilliard. Um, you Went, graduate. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. are you doing your master's there now? Are you or no?
1: No, I'm getting my master's at Johns Hopkins. Oh, okay. Um. So I I applied to three schools for my master's. I got into two of them, but I ultimately made the decision to not go back to Juilliard because although Juilliard is an incredible place of opportunity and I have gotten so much from it, you can't grow and change in the place that made you sick in the first place. And I'm not saying that Juilliard itself made me sick. I I I know you're not
0: personally attacking Juilliard.
1: (laughs) I'm not personally attacking Juilliard, but in my time at Juilliard, I got very sick. I had depression, I had an eating disorder, and part of me looks back now and thinks, damn, like I wasted my time having depression and an eating disorder at one of the best schools in the world. Um, But I can't change the past. That's what happened. And as much as I love the people there, I love my professor who I still talk to all the time, I made the decision to leave. And now I'm at Johns Hopkins, which is, I'm still in New York because of COVID. Um, If it wasn't COVID, I'd be in Baltimore right now. Um, And I'm studying with, actually, I'm studying with the teacher now that I originally wanted to study with for my undergrad. I wanted to, Johns Hopkins is a conservatory called Peabody, which is where I am, Peabody Institute. And um, I got in for my undergrad. Peabody, and I wanted to go because this teacher Boris Slutsky—he's amazing. He's like, I've always wanted to study with him. He's like, incredible teacher, like legend. It's just amazing. But you know, Juilliard is Juilliard, and, you know, I. <laughs> uh, so I went to Juilliard, yeah. but it's almost as if finally, like, I'm making the decision all on my own for myself and like finally I get to study with the teacher that I really want to be with not to say I mean my teacher at Juilliard was incredible I'm just saying you know what I'm saying yeah um (laughs) but yeah so I'm getting my master's at Johns Hopkins and
0: what are you getting your master's in
1: piano performance and I'm also doing creative writing at Johns Hopkins
0: so I'm glad you you just said those two because I'm going to tie those together uh just for what you're doing right now with your literary music series because that was super fascinating to oh right yes
1: (laughs) so I started actually in quarantine because I was bored I started an organization called literary music series and it comes from my deep love for both uh, literary and musical art forms. And, uh, the former actually developed quite recently. I've always loved to write, but I never thought that I was any good. And I never took it seriously until while I was at Juilliard, I took classes at Columbia university, um, creative writing. And I realized that, Hey, maybe I'm good. And I started learning about poetry and the intricacies of it. And, um, the techniques of it. I started reading more poetry. I've always been a really avid reader ever since I was a little girl. Um, But writing came later. And I came to a point where I started loving writing pretty equally to the amount that I loved music. And I thought that that was a tragedy because I didn't (laughs) want to choose... And then I realized that, you know what, maybe I don't have to. And so that's where I started intertwining in my own personal performances, um, the piano repertoire that I played with poetry or an excerpt from a novel. And I would speak to the audience in these performances about how these seemingly unrelated art forms, you know, communicate with each other, enhance each other, and... The experience for the listener, I found, was actually much more accessible and comforting is what I heard from my audience members when I, when I started to do this, because you go into a concert hall, you go into a classical music um, concert, and, you know, if you purchase a ticket to see, you know, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra... It's there's a good chance that you know something about classical music, because otherwise, why would you spend money on that? Yeah. But you know, oftentimes, you know, I take my dad as an example. My dad goes to my concerts. He doesn't know anything about music, but he sits there for support. So I treat him as like a good barometer for these types of things, because you know, a lot of the times it can be quite alienating to be in a symphony hall, listen to a symphony that's an hour and a half long. Now they have program notes, but sometimes they don't, so you actually don't really know what you're listening to besides the you know title of the piece, the composer, and the duration of it. But you don't know the historical context. You don't know what artwork was created at the time. You don't know the composer's backstory.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so I thought that that was wrong, so I started in my performances to talk about the music. And then I started to connect it to poetry when I started writing more. And I had a concert, I'm going so many changes. I had a con- mm-hmm. tangents. I had a concert in Holland um, a couple of years ago. I had several concerts in Holland. And that was actually 2018. That was the first time where I connected poetry to music. And I remember I connected uh, Dickinson to Bach and uh, Pablo Neruda to Chopin. And the response from the audience was so loving because they said, you know what? Like I finally had an emotional and intimate and personal connection to what I was listening to. Otherwise I would have just been paying attention to, Oh, you you're such a great pianist. Like you play that so well. It's so impressive. But hearing that poem and understanding via your explanation and uh, via your explanation and just hearing the poem, alongside the music allows me to see different things in the harmonies and really, you know, focus on what I'm listening to and how it connects to my own life because, you know, music has piano repertoires no words there. Yeah. Um, and poetry, although sometimes it can be, you know, a little bit inaccessible, it's, manipulation of language and turning it into art so it's much more accessible than music that's kind of how literary music series got started because i there are poetry slams there are classical music concerts but and there are book readings um but nothing exists at least what i know maybe there does and i, I don't know but
0: i wonder if there's a neuroscience can... behind that uh, as far as using kind of both sides of your brain When you're like hearing the words uh, and then hearing the music and you know what i mean um
1: yeah 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 and i just i wanted to create a platform where musicians can step outside of the bubble of classical music and realize that you know that's not the only thing that exists and although it stands alone as such a towering art form it can be so beautifully connected to not just literature and poetry but visual art dance film i mean i've had a filmmaker on my series i've had an artist on my series a painter i've had a poet on my i've had poets on my series of course
0: um, on the note of poetry, and I, I know I've kept you for over an hour, but I'd be remiss if I did. not No, that's uh, because
1: I. It's because I talk too much.
0: <laughs> that's that's the point of the whole show. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up your recently released book, your poetry oh, yeah. book.
1: Yeah. So around this time last year, I realized that I had enough poems to create a book, and. I started editing them I started writing new ones I started taking some out I rewrote it at some point completely and it's a very vulnerable book for me because poetry um, it shares some of the most intimate parts of ourselves and stories in our lives and some of the most painful moments in our lives but like veiled and metaphor and art and you know I much of that book um, was written during like very painful experiences and painful times. And I think the beauty of that is, you know, anyone can read any poem not knowing its specific source and have it be a part of their own story. Yeah. You know, there's a poem in there about, you know, depression and like suicide and death and, know breakups, but I don't specify that, and there's poems in there about falling in love there's poems in there about it's not all depressing there's poems in there about you know growing up there's poems in there about my father, about my mother, about my sister, my brother, not my dog I don't know why um, <laughs> but, uh but no, no one would know that because they're all kind of hidden in sentences that are s- sparkled with, you know, metaphor and poetic technique.
0: Well, yeah, it's. I mean, it's great. I haven't gone through all of them, but I uh, the ones I have, I try. I tried to do one on TikTok, and it was <laughs> terrible and embarrassing, and I didn't even save it in a draft. Um, <laughs> but. Yeah, you no it's should. it's it's a great book. Um, where can
1: people find it? You can go to either my bio in my Instagram or my TikTok. You can get it on Amazon in paperback or Kindle. You can get it you can get a signed copy on my website or I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but on September 29th you can get an audiobook. Oh nice. Audible.
0: It'll be, uh, it'll be after that, but are you reading the Audible? Oh, yeah, of
1: course. Yeah.
0: Are you so excited for that? <laughs> That's cool. I'm so
1: excited. I'm That's so a, excited. Uh, yeah.
0: What is it called again?
1: I Quiet the World.
0: There it is. I Quiet the World. You can find it on Amazon or go to her link tree. Um,
1: yay. Yay.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I will talk to you soon then.
1: All right. Thank All right. you for doing this with me. That was fun.
0: Thank you for doing it. Take care of yourself. I'm here again with Jenny Helms, friend of the podcast, and uh, I'm going to get this right. Licensed, certified marriage and family therapist specializing in... No, I didn't. Oh, no. What do all the letters mean? It's
2: okay. It's licensed clinical. Clinical. Marriage and family therapist. I'll be yeah,
0: quizzed on so this when close. I go to school for all this. <laughs>
2: you're so close. That's
0: too many letters. Uh, well, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, our, our first question, and actually the first question that was asked... Um, so we're kind of circling back to the beginning here, but this is something that my wife struggles with as well. And Carly asks, um, how you recommend decreasing anxiety at night? My insomnia is off the chart these days because I can't shut my brain off at night. And I'd love to hear some tips. Uh, I do this in the middle of the night. Like God forbid I wake up at two in the morning cause then I will lay there and think not anxiety. Really. I just don't shut my head off. I'll think of like 900 things to do, or I'll get an idea for a song or I'll like, and it's, Laying there for hours, but I know my wife struggles with this, and apparently Carly does too, where you just can't go to sleep because too much stuff, whether it be work or Mm -hmm. family or whatever that is.
2: Yeah, so there could be a multitude of reasons this is happening, but if I'm speaking generally, I would question first sleep hygiene, and I think people don't think about it like as as it being very serious, but even in my own sleep hygiene, I notice a very big difference between, you know, if I'm actually having a routine before bed and I'm doing all the things that I normally do and I'm not watching anything that stimulates my brain or I'm not having, I'm not having conversations that stimulate my brain. So it's kind of funny. I actually have had to set part or boundaries with my partner that I don't, have like business conversations or like really serious conversations typically before bed if I can avoid it because for me if I have those serious conversations my brain will start to turn on and those gears start firing and I will have a hard time sleeping even if the conversation goes well it's just the fact that I'm having like a more complex conversation in the evening so sleep hygiene is really like after a certain point in the evening whether it's 6 p.m 7 p.m you know, making sure that you're not watching stuff that, um, is going to overstimulate your brain or wearing, you know, those blue light blocking glasses. There's actually some pretty cool ones out there now. Um, so if you are sensitive to that, like those are worth, trying like experimenting with as well yeah. um i i personally that doesn't make a huge difference for me but i do notice as far as my like headaches and things like that like i actually um i do like them if i'm going to be looking at a screen for quite some time so minimizing your exposure to blue light having a routine that actually lets your body know and your nervous system know Right. Your nervous system kind of needs some cues that it's going to bed. And so things like having a routine around washing your face or brushing your teeth or if you take a bath before bed or whatever it is and doing that consistently. Now, it's not that necessarily over like the first night it's going to be just like magic and it's going to happen that first night. But over time, you're cueing your body into realizing, okay, it's time for rest. It's time to shut my brain down. It's time to get into the mode that is best for me before I go to sleep. And our brain will start to pattern that. Um, and so it it sounds simple, but a lot of people don't realize this, like these subtle ways that they have crazy sleep hygiene where like nothing is consistent, and so their brain does have a hard time saying. We don't know when it's time for sleep or when we're supposed to be gearing into that. Um, and may not realize like some of the shows they watch or the activities they do before bed or things that might be a bit more obvious like caffeine um, or even alcohol intake um, can really impact people's ability to f- fall asleep. Um, now, secondarily, if you have problems with your brain kind of going into overdrive, the other thing I'm thinking is. You'll probably want to address the underlying anxiety of that regardless, yeah. right in therapy or in some other way because tip or in other ways, because typically that's already a sign that you've got like your nervous system is kind of wired in certain ways where it's where it's anxious. Um, and all of us have that to some extent. But if you have it to the point where you cannot fall asleep, that is kind of an extreme enough level that you may want to consider doing some pre-work right like not just not just trying to like get your body into a certain mode at that time but realizing generally you know maybe when you finally do get some peace and quiet that's when your brain goes into anxiety mode
0: yeah um i want to address a few things first i think sleep hygiene is not not hilarious in a funny way but hilarious because mine is terrible like like <laughs> Every night we watch, like, rewatch, I should say, for the 900th time, like an episode of The Office. And then we're both on our phones until we Mm -hmm. go to bed. And we even turn (laughs) the light off with our phones because it's on a little Wi Fi switch. Um, Yeah, that could always be better. Are you, let me ask you from that standpoint uh, professional opinion, even Mm -hmm. though, (laughs) which doesn't mean you have to abide by it, but do you have a TV in your room and do you recommend TVs in the room?
2: do um it's funny I did not for a really long time I actually just more recently got one in the room that I use like I had one in my room before in the house before but I never used it like it was almost like yeah. a prop um
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> and and now I actually I use it more but it's it's like the last two to three months sort of thing mm. um I don't know I feel like I am lucky that like I don't really struggle with that type of sleep insomnia. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. I'm not saying that I don't have that predisposition because I know some of my family members do, Yeah. but I think for me, I do have a routine before bed. Like I really do. And I know it sounds silly, but like it does cue my brain like, Hey, right now is bedtime. My brain naturally kind of turns to mush after 6 PM. And so I cannot have complex conversations even yeah. if I want to. Um, the things that I'll typically watch before I go to bed are very lighthearted. They're comedy, um, very chill. So for me, it, doesn't, it definitely doesn't stimulate my brain. And if anything, yeah. half the time I fall asleep while watching TV. Um, my brain definitely doesn't feel an investment to finish a show. Um, yeah. And I think with the workouts that I do – and just the way I generally take care of like my physical being, my nervous system is pretty ready for rest at that point. So I I sleep usually pretty good, and I usually get about seven to eight hours of sleep. And that's not to brag. Like I I feel I really feel for people that don't. Um, I'm a disaster if I get like only five. So <laughs> I don't know. My body is definitely in a space where it's like you've done enough through the day. You've physically exerted yourself and it is totally ready for bed at the end of the day
0: yeah so what do you think of because i use this regularly um and i know it works for my wife a lot who like you said like anxiety all the time and this just happens to be at bedtime um sleep meditations like just Mm -hmm. little meditations um thoughts on that so i mean i use the little five minute one that just kind of helps you relax be more conscious of your breath and your body and and The thing that's actually pointed out in the meditation that I love so much, because I use it then without the meditation, I guess it's still meditation then, I'm just not being guided, (laughs) is like she talks about notice how when you think about a part of your body, that part of your body relaxes. Just thinking about it relaxes that part of your body, and you can kind of do that mentally head to toe and kind of just relax and fall asleep.
2: Yeah, so I... I definitely think if they resonate for you and if you connect with them, and I, I don't say this in a weird way, like I really think that they're very useful for people because what it does is it it does tap into your brain's ability to communicate with your nervous system
1: yeah.
2: and, and try to kind of get it into a mode and a gear that's ready for sleep. Um, so definitely recommend that. And physically you're also – cueing your nervous system yeah. with the deep belly breathing and that sort of thing that we need and we do naturally when we're sleeping. The other thing, it's kind of funny. I've always because I'm always like I do like meditation and I don't. I have like a love-hate relationship with it um in the sense that like sometimes I have a hard time fully shutting things off and connecting to like a meditation. Yeah. But I I sometimes find that I'll do mindfulness or meditations in my own kind of way. And this might be helpful for some people that have a harder time connecting directly to like meditation. But I sometimes I I do notice that when I'm struggling to fall asleep as soon as I want to, I will kind of rehearse something in my head, like, and it's, it's really silly. Like I I was not ever a dancer or anything like that, but sometimes I just watch like a literally like this ballerina in my mind, just like dancing and that will like literally put me to sleep. And I think there's something like about the repetitiveness of it or just like rehearsing something or, you know, there's different ways that we can like hone in on certain things or visualize that will help us sleep. And I think meditation really taps into that so if you don't have something you do personally that helps you do that kind of like my little dancing ballerina thing that I do I don't know why
0: I have that I do Um, I do I do a math thing which like if you hate math you won't like it but I'll start at like a thousand and I will pick a random number one through ten or one through twenty and I will just subtract that number all the way down Cause like, I'll do like, if I pick seven, it'll be like a thousand, 993, 986. And I'll cause sometimes you have to think about it, but like the, the repetition and the pattern will start to like, just de- 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 de, nod you off.
2: Yeah. Well, and if you do hate math, maybe it's a great way to do it too. Cause your brain's like, I'm so tired of this. So let's go to bed. Yeah.
0: Fuck off. Why are you doing this right now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of like when
2: they talk about like reading those really dense books before bed, yeah. how like for some people, their brain's just like, they get through half the page and then they're like, and good night.
0: <laughs> well, and on the note of that, I, I've heard that that is uh, kind of natural because the back and forth of your eyes is stimulating rapid eye movement and your brain's like, oh, it's it's time for sleep. So yep. if you find yourself sleeping yep. in class, this might be another <laughs> helpful thing. <laughs>
2: little tidbit for you yeah but yeah well yeah
0: that's that's awesome um i think sleep hygiene is probably one that we can all especially in the age of smartphones we can all do a little better at uh (laughs) me personally for sure and and hopefully carly can get a little more sleep um
2: yeah or just a ritual i mean like if she has something she does every night before she goes to bed yeah. like
0: which I feel like I most women do, and I don't want to like stereotype here because I, I, mean, I can fall, <laughs> I can fall into bed and like, I have to remember yeah. to brush my teeth and stuff because I'm just like, no, sleep time. Um, but you know, my wife like <laughs> washes her face and like does the whole tooth routine and has mouthwash in her mouth for longer than I think is humanly possible. And <laughs> mm. so, uh, yeah, I think women just like do more stuff before bed than men do. Mm-hmm. So it's probably easier to do that in a like routine wise.
2: Yeah, no. that's right. No, I have to. Yeah, I have to remind my partner to brush his teeth. And like, <laughs> did you brush your teeth? Like, <laughs> and he has like. I mean, he is so blessed to have like. Um, I got. I guess there's different types of teeth, and like they're like cavity resistant teeth. Fuck
0: you. <laughs>
2: I know he's like superior genetics, basically.
0: Uh, um, are the minor cavity susceptible it could be yeah. my natural childhood resistance to brushing my teeth when i was a kid but uh...
2: uh i was hoping that's how you built that immunity that your teeth were resistant to cavities but it's I like is
0: there not. a spray on an animal so i don't have to worry about this as much <laughs> jesus exactly um, yeah so, all right well before we so branch funny. off on dental hygiene um thank you jenny and carly go get some sleep thank you so much All right, you just listened to my interview with Natalie, as well as some QA with our resident therapist, Jenny Helms. You can follow Natalie on TikTok, where I follow her at Pianista Poeta. That is P I A N I S T A dot P O E T A. Uh, she's got like a hundred and some thousand followers. It's great content on there. And you can follow Jenny Helms everywhere at Jenny Ann Helms. You can also find Natalie on Instagram at Pianista Poeta, no dot on the Instagram one. And you follow us at Friend Request Pod on all platforms. And I hope you guys do because we put out some great content mainly pictures on instagram (laughs) so thank you guys so much for listening um it is getting to be the winter season so if you are like me and drinking some non-alcoholic beers or if you just want to try non-alcoholic beers and kind of cut down on all the alcohol you have been drinking during this quarantine uh, i highly recommend bravis brewing out of california because they just came back out with their limited edition peanut butter stout And you can get a full case for free shipping and 10% off when you use code FRIENDREQUEST at checkout. So check that out. Look what I did there. And I will talk to you guys next week. I love you so much. Thank you for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode.